Uh, well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy, one of the leaders here, and um, it's my privilege to be able to walk through the book of Job with you over the next couple of weeks. Four weeks, we're going to spin in a book with 42 chapters, so we're going to move a little bit quicker than we move through John. Um, but I think as we go, you'll see why and why it is that we speed up and slow down at certain points in this book. But if you're not familiar with the book of Job, um, let me kind of introduce you to this book. It is a book that has received perhaps more attention than any other book in the Bible. And that's not just from Christian scholars who have a faith in Christ, uh, but even unbelievers, uh, famous ones such as Carl Jung, not a believer at all, uh, has written a commentary on the book of Job. And I think the reason it's received so much attention as you dive into the book becomes pretty apparent pretty quickly. It's dealing with probably the most universal human experience that there is, the experience of suffering. And it deals with this in intimate detail as the book carries on. And it's one that's perennially relevant. So I was watching the beginning of a a documentary the other night. So um, Ken Burns um, and his partner have put out a a documentary feature on the Vietnam War. And I think the total volume, I think, is almost 20 hours in length. So it's a massive effort. Um, But in the the opening sort of um, scene in kind of the introduction... One of the soldiers quotes Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, to live is to suffer, to survive is to find meaning in suffering. And that's kind of, that kind of opens the theme of the documentary. That it is the case that everybody in the world experiences some kind and in some form or way suffering. And the question is, to survive means to find meaning within that. And how do we find meaning? Well, it's generally through stories. And I think there are two stories in particular that we lean towards in our culture that aren't particularly effective at producing meaning in dealing with the issue of suffering. Let me me illustrate it from a young 18-year-old self. When When I turned 18, it was the first time I kind of suffered in any significant sense. It was the first bout of serious depression that I actually went through. And, uh, and it kind of was kicked off by a relationship that broke down. And I kind of, I'd, until that point, had been a reasonably optimistic personality just by nature. And I just found myself just, just wallowing in morbid thoughts. I couldn't sleep properly. I became really withdrawn. At first, I was like, what is going on? And after several months, it kind of became apparent that what I was experiencing was kind of extended bout of depression. Now, I've heard Nick Cave say that, uh, that every young man awaits his first great tragedy as his passage to manhood. And I think, to be honest, that was how I took it. And so rather than dealing with it properly, I really just wallowed in it. Uh, and, it was, and it was almost the idea that it, that it became like, a, like my identity, what made me special or important. Rather than dealing with it, I'd double down on it. When I was feeling down, I'd, instead of like trying to pull my mood up, I'd go worse and I'd watch like Taxi Driver or some just you know, depressing French New Wave film or something like that and really dive down into it. And it had a consequence. It meant that it just tended me towards negativity and despair. The upshot of it was that it kind of made you feel somewhat important. Well, I'm I'm one of those authentic people that really get stuck into the existential questions, no matter how sort of heavy or burdening that is. You know, kind of like heavy lies the crown, right? But in the end, it just made me sick of myself. And I remember getting to the point, I remember a particular day where I was like, I've just had enough of myself, of the sulking, of the producing crap art and pretending it's really profound, right? Just of all of that, I was just like, I'm done. And I switched gears 
to probably what is another common approach to suffering, and that was to just minimize it. To be like, I'm done. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to sulk. I'm just going to get on with things, and I'm going to move forward. And so that's what I did. I just toughened up. I got a bag of concrete and hardened up and just kicked on. And over several months, it did actually start to, to disappear. But I noticed that it had a, a, a chilling effect on the soul. That to toughen up through things will get you through it, but it will also make you very hardened. And I noticed it made me very cynical. It made me still a little bit withdrawn and skeptical. But also it makes you unsympathetic to other people's suffering too. Because if that's the way you dealt with it, well, that's how they should deal with it too. Just harden up and move on with it. I think those are two ways generally that people tend to approach suffering. One is to push us all the way to despair and the other is to go to cynicism to toughen it out and push through it. And I don't think either of them is very successful at meaningfully dealing with the issue of suffering. And what we see in Job is a story that if we understand it rightly will show us that God is enough to give us a story that produces meaning even in a world where suffering makes it seem so meaningless. And so I'm going to pray that as we dive into this book over the next few weeks, that we will find exactly that. Let's pray. God, you are Lord of all, Lord of heaven and earth, and you are our heavenly Father. You are not unaware of the suffering that mankind faces, that people face day in and day out, and yet you do not sit idly by that you have dealt with this as we'll see in your word and in your gospel. And so, Father, we pray that you would lift our eyes to see the glory of what you have done and who you are, and that we might see that you are enough to make it through a world that is riddled with suffering. And, Father, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, let's dive into the beginning of this story, because the first five sentences really lay out the shape for the rest of the story. In Job 1, sentence 1, it says... There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Well, the first question that kind of comes up in this book is, well, who is Job and where is he and when is he? And really, the opening part of this book doesn't answer any of those questions comprehensively. We don't know where the land of Uz was. There's no reference like in other books as to how that relates to other parts of the ancient Near East. We're not really given a time frame here. We're told that he was offering burnt offerings, but it's not clear whether that was after Israel had entered the land that they belonged to them or before. Uh, Even with this, we're not told much about what's around him or, or anything to really locate us in a particular time. There are some clues, but in some ways it's, it's, it's kind of vague. The other thing you might notice is everything's quite neat. Everything's in sets of seven or three or ten. And these are all kind of tidy numbers that are put together. 
The book of Job in the Bible is not categorized with other books of history that kind of are meant to map a timeline from one point to another. It's, it's categorized as, as wisdom literature, which characteristically doesn't sit neatly within the timeline of the Bible. And so how is it that we read this story? Was Job even real? Is this a fiction story? What are we meant to take this as? Well, it puts you that Job is a real person whose account has been stylized in the, in the genre of wisdom literature to focus our attention on some key points. I say this because elsewhere in the Bible, Job is referenced amidst a catalogue of other characters who were historical uh, characters. In the book of Ezekiel, in the book of James, he's kind of referred to as an example of faith. But also we see here that it's very clearly a, a stylized account. Now why would God put this in Scripture? I'll put it to you for, for three reasons. The first is an account of this real man Job's story kind of stylized, will focus our attention on some very key theological truths. It's going to bring some things into focus that we'll see even from these first five sentences. The second one is that when dealing with something as profound and universal as suffering, it perhaps deserves the kind of poetry and the style that this is written in. And lastly, it's written this way so that his story is not kind of located or, or, or kind of cordoned off in one particular part of history, but it almost becomes a universal story of suffering, that Job isn't just a person who suffered. In many ways, he's every person who has suffered. You can relate to him uh, because he's not bound up in one particular time frame. And so here in this opening chapter, what is it that we actually learn that's going to set up the rest of the story? Well, the first thing is this. In case you missed it, Job is good. Now, we know from Scripture that no human who has ever walked this earth has not sinned. But Job is relatively, in that sense, good. As far as a human being goes, he's a good one. He really fears God. He really loves God. He really has a pattern of obedience in his life. And the things around him kind of match up with that. He has, he has grown, he's looked after his family. They're a harmonious family. They have family dinners every night of the week where everyone comes around. And he has looked after his property. Job is good, and yet Job is going to suffer. And this is a key theological point from the book of Job, that you can be good and undeserving of the suffering that you face. And that may not, be, that may not sound like a particularly profound point, but it really is. I heard the other week, the, um, someone was recounting an article on refugees and how they retell their stories or understand the stories of their nation in light of their exile or their need to flee from their home country. And the author was saying that many of them will recast their nation's history in such a way that it explains that it was almost their fault that their people had to be expelled or, or treated badly or persecuted. When I heard that, I thought, that is such a sad thing to hear. Why, why would we do that? And apparently it's a common kind of human kind of mode of, uh, of thinking that often when we experience suffering, we try and create a story that would explain it as almost our fault. Why? I wonder if it's this. Is it the case, if we can believe that in this world good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, that if we could just do the right things, 
then maybe we could be spared from suffering in the future. Even if that means taking responsibility for something that wasn't our fault in the past. If you're a religious person, it might take the form of saying, well, if you're suffering, it's because you just haven't had enough faith. If you had more faith, God would deal with your suffering. If you had been more faithful, this wouldn't have happened to you. You just need more faith in order to get through it. But even if you're not religious, a secular version of it would be thinking that somehow what happened to me was my fault. I did it. It was because of something that I did. That's why this has happened. But here, in the story of Job, we see that Job is completely innocent and his suffering is unrelated to that. He has not in any way brought it upon himself. The good people can suffer. And that is a comfort in one sense and that it takes away needless guilt that we put upon ourselves in certain situations. But in another sense, it's frightening that we could do everything right and yet still not be spared suffering. Because look at what happens as the story moves on. Job 1, 6 to 12. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And so we see in this account that we are given a true characterization of who God is and how he relates to Satan. Satan in the Bible Hasatan means the adversary or the enemy. And really he's a character that is a, a malevolent supernatural force that is set upon chaos and evil. And when, when God questions him, it tells us a couple of things. One, that they are not rival gods competing for supremacy. There's not a battle going on between them. That God is fully and completely sovereign over the universe that he has created and even Satan who is a part of that. But more than that, we see the malevolence of Satan. When God asks him, what have you been doing? And he says, roaming to and fro. He doesn't mean he's been on tour or on a Kentucky trip through Europe. He's not been wandering about, just <laughs> bored, wondering what to do. The idea here is, is more the idea of, like, of prowling. In the New Testament, in the book of Peter, Peter describes Satan as a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. This is the kind of character that he is. And that's what makes what happens next probably even more unsettling. God says in Job 1, 8 to 12. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Here, God is depicted as completely in control and he is the one who suggests Job. One, one preacher has put it this way, it would be like, imagine a jewellery store owner had a thief walk in. I mean, how he knows a thief? He's wearing a balaclava. Ah, look, whatever. It's an illustration. Thief walks into his shop and he says to the thief, as he's kind of looking around, have you seen my prized diamond? Why would he draw his attention to that particular diamond? Why would a jewellery store owner do that? Why is God saying here, have you considered my servant Job? 
He knows that Satan is a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. Why would he do that? And this really gets to the heart of the main question that this book is seeking to answer. The main question this book is seeking to answer is, is God in himself enough for us? Notice the question that Satan poses. He says, you say, look at your servant Job and how much he loves you. Of course he loves you. Look how rich he is. Who wouldn't love you? If, if anyone had a kind of a theological worldview, and they believed that God was in charge, and they looked around and saw that they were rich, they'd be like, I love God. He's saying, of course Job loves you. He doesn't really love you. He's just using you for your stuff. He just knows that you're the one who can give him all these things. That's what he really loves. He's, he's kind of insinuating that Job is just using God. You think about it like this. If you've, if you've ever, in a work context, found that someone has been pursuing you for a friendship and it kind of comes out of nowhere and they're pursuing you, pursuing you, and then all of a sudden they realize that you can't give them what they thought you could. And at that point they drop the friendship and disappear and you realize you weren't making a friend, you were being networked. That's what was happening. They didn't like you or have an interest in you as a person. They only wanted what you could potentially offer. That's how Satan is characterizing Job. He's like, Job doesn't love you. He just loves the stuff that you give him. And God contests that that isn't the case. And so we see the, the primary purpose of God in the suffering of his people is that they would know with truth and depth that he is enough for them. So you cannot know that God is all you need until God is all you have. And in this story, that's exactly what happens. See, look what happens next. In Job 13 to 22, we see this. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another who said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this... Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is Job's response. He is hit with wave after wave of unimaginable tragedy. The refrain keeps coming, and while he was yet speaking, as if the messenger is still kind of talking, and then another messenger arrives. And each of them follow the same kind of pattern. They outline something tragic that has happened, and they say, I alone am the one who have escaped. And it's one after the other after the other, and he breaks down. But then we get this extraordinary response where he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a couple of things in this. One is that after losing everything, 
he still says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And in God, he still has enough to make meaning out of this suffering. He says, in this God is enough. But secondly, notice that Job goes straight to God. Think of all the other people that were responsible for what happened. The Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, whatever else went on. He goes right to the supreme authority in the universe, God. Now, some commentators on this have said, well, in his, in his grief, he's mistakenly attributed God responsibility to this. But the problem is that the commentator in the text has put the line in there in 22 saying, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He was right to charge God with ultimate responsibility. Sometimes when it comes to the issue of suffering, we would like to get God off the hook. We want to protect Him, but God goes straight to Him and says the Lord was the one who gave and the Lord ultimately is the one who was taken away. So how is it that God could be responsible for all this tragedy and yet not be charged with the same charge as Satan? How could he not be rightly called as wicked as Satan? Well, the first thing to remember is as we weigh Scripture against Scripture, it it is the clear testimony of the Bible that God cannot do or participate in evil. That that is what makes him God. That is what makes him and the enemy enemies. In Habakkuk 1.13 it says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. Addressing God. In Proverbs 17.15 it says, He who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, nor can he tempt anyone. In Lamentations 3.31, talking about the destruction that fell on Israel and Judah in particular, says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. God cannot commit evil. He could not intervene and suggest to the Sabaean, it would be a good idea if you were to steal others' property or to take life. He cannot. But he does allow it. And if that's the case, well then still, how is he any better? Well, this is the clear and prominent biblical truth that's going to come up in Job. And it's a theme all the way from Genesis to Revelation. That God allows evil during this time before he returns. God allows evil only to the end that it would serve good. He only gives evil enough rope that it would hang itself. Have a look what happens next in the book of Job. Job chapter 2, 1 to 11. It says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of pottery 
with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And again in this, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Satan's desire is to prove that Job, and not just Job, but that all humanity would not and could not love God for who he really is, but just use him. And so he says, if you take away all his stuff, he will curse you. And he doesn't. Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. But then Satan says, well, of course, I mean, if you spare a man's life, I mean, if you take away his stuff, that's fine. So long as he's fine, he can manage. And so he's afflicted with disease and sores and still what he says honors God. Satan's desire is that Job would curse God. And yet God produces in Job the kind of worship, the kind of purity of worship that could not have happened without that suffering. When Job says in this state, blessed be the name of the Lord, it has a new gravity that it didn't have before. Because now he has nothing but God and still worships him. And this tells us a few things. One, that God will only give evil enough rope to hang itself. Satan's desire was evil and instead it has produced good. But secondly, that God will set the measure of our suffering. The 18th century preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote about, and he suffered depression his whole life, that he, it kicked off really when he was uh, in a packed auditorium and someone yelled fire and created a stampede where hundreds of people were maimed or died. And, uh, and the depression kicked on from there. And he, in speaking about this, Spurgeon said, It would be a very sharp and trying experience for me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Why is that a comfort? Why would it be a comfort to know that the God that you love and worship is the one who is in charge of all that happens, including the suffering that we experience? If God is not ultimately in charge, then God cannot ultimately help. He, like us, is a bystander looking on longingly, unwilling and unable to even help. If there is no good God at the helm of this universe, then suffering is meaningless and it's chaos. That is one of the major critiques of a secular worldview is that within a worldview that has no reach for God or eternity or anything beyond our current story, that suffering has no meaning or purpose in this life. It's meaningless. And as a result, a secular society struggles to see any kind of purpose in it. It's just hard, it's bad, it's counterproductive, and there is no meaning to it. Amanda Hess wrote an article uh, entitled, Why Teenagers Love Making Jokes About 9-11. And it was addressing this kind of concern of like, one of those typical like, oh, the youth of today kind of thing, look how terrible they are. Um, Because there'd been sort of a a spate of jokes around the tragedy uh, that was 9-11. And she said about this, and I think she wrote an article that was insightful and compassionate. And she said about the jokes that were being made, she said, these are not objectively funny jokes, but they performed a ritual for many Americans who experienced the attacks on a visceral level, even though they had no direct personal connection to the victims. So he goes on to say that we observe through the media 
more tragedy than any human has ever had scope to understand in human history ever before, and we don't know how to respond to it. And she's observing in these teenagers that they have no idea how to, how to respond to this immense sort of scope of tragedy that's coming through the screens that they're consuming. And goes on to say, teenagers have surveyed the digital artifacts left in the wake of their parents' trauma and decided that they were taking up too much cultural space. So they're flattening them into jokes and throwing them away. Which is another way of saying that the, the scale of human suffering is almost too much to deal with and their worldview is not able to process it. So they're just turning them into jokes so they don't feel anything towards them so they can just discard it. I'd put to you, it's not just teens. I think the whole secular worldview is incapable of dealing with suffering in a meaningful way. If Nietzsche was right, and that to live is to suffer, but to survive is to make meaning from suffering, a secular view does not have enough meaning to go around. And yet Job, in the midst of suffering in this, has enough in God. He trusted that God was sovereign and trustworthy, And though he never found out the specific reason why he was to suffer, it was enough to know that there was a good God on the throne of the universe who would only ever give evil enough rope to hang itself. And to think how little Job knew of God's plans and purposes compared to us today. If you know the story of the Bible, you know that God did not stand idly by, but that entered human history and entered the experience, the very experience of human suffering. That Jesus came as a man and was characterized as the man of sorrows. That he experienced suffering personally. And he wasn't just relatively innocent like Job. He was absolutely innocent. There is no one who has walked this earth who has not suffered. And yet at the same time in some, even in small way, contributed to suffering on this planet. All of us have. And yet Jesus never did. He contributed nothing to the suffering here and brought only good, and yet he suffered like no one has suffered before. And that means that God understands suffering. It means that he understands suffering as an innocent party and understands injustice in a profound way, not just in a conceptual way, but experientially, that he literally came and suffered and died for our sin. And thirdly, he's the ultimate historical demonstration that God will take evil and make it serve the purpose of good. The, very, the most evil act that was ever committed was when humanity sought to kill the Son of God. And yet that was the very moment that God chose to bring about the greatest good in all human history. In Corinthians 5.21 it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And reflecting on this, one author writes, The death of Jesus Christ was murder. It was the most spectacular sin ever committed. At the all-important pivot of human history, the worst sin ever committed served to show the greatest glory of Christ and obtain the sin-conquering gift of God's grace. God did not just overcome evil at the cross. He made evil serve the overcoming of evil. He made evil commit suicide in doing its worst evil. The book of Job will tell us that God will not give us a clear and definitive and specific answer as to why it is that we would suffer. And it doesn't say why. Whether it's because there isn't one that we could understand, that evil is of the kind of nature that we couldn't wrap our our rational minds around it, whether it's just that we would trust him. 
But the testimony of Scripture is that He has done enough to demonstrate that He is trustworthy, that His purposes are good, and that He ultimately only allows evil insofar as it will serve good in the end. That that is His sovereign plan. And on the last day, would you be able to stand before Him and say that the testimony of your bloodied and beaten son on my behalf for my sin was not enough for me to believe that though I don't know everything, I can trust that you're good and you're in charge. There's so much more for us to dig into in this book of Job. There are 40 more chapters that we're going to get into that are going to cover so many things. But may it be enough right now to encourage you that Christ is enough. That the cross teaches us that God can use evil to do good. That it teaches us that God isn't aloof to the experience of human suffering. And the cross teaches us that God can be trusted. So take heart. Christ has walked where our feet have failed to walk. Let's pray that God would strengthen us. Father God,